Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, Connor, I guess we're kind of close to the apocalypse now. Yeah. We've got Donald Trump and we've got pandemic. Right. We've got fires. We've got 113 Raging degrees. Raging across the West Coast. In Los Angeles. Thank goodness this fire that we're, uh, uh, you know, these fires that we're suffering through in Southern California, the Bobcat Fire and uh, the the other one that's uh, it's also uh, up there in the uh, Angeles National Forest. Um, thank goodness that they didn't happen on the days when we had 118 degrees in here in SoCal. It would have been, um, been a bad confluence it, of events. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a mere balmy 95 with ash raining from the sky. So it, really, this is normal September for us. 15, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and laugh at all this, I think. One hopes. Uh, so let's refresh folks' memory if they're uh, kind of new to the show. I mean, uh, uh, five or six million people are, are devoted listeners. And so oh, they you don't can't give need... away that free information of how many listeners we have. But, you know, probably one or two million listening today are, are yeah. kind of brand new. Brand even, new. Every episode. they've heard so it. much around the water cooler. Oh, right. <laughs> Wait a minute. No more water coolers. No more offices. Anyway, the show is about clash without the fatigue. Uh, I am a baby boomer, a libertarian. Connor is a millennial progressive. So we tackle issues, and it's about two opposite poles of American thought, but without the debilitating polarization. And it's about closing the generation gap with hopefully respect and humor and critical thinking and love. It's it's our approach. We actually are hugging the whole time during right. the show. It's not, not? COVID-friendly at all, but, you know, we got to do it. Uh, we're kind of in the same pod here. We're hunkering down. So we're here to answer some questions each week. Uh, we generally tape on uh, Sunday. Uh, today is the 13th of September. And a few questions are on our minds. First, are red flag laws a no-brainer, or are they a sinister plot to confiscate your guns? So red flag laws, we'll get into the details, but basically if somebody's a maniac and a family member or somebody thinks that they're a maniac, they can go to a judge and say, hey, Your Honor, you better take their Uzi away from them. Uh, some people don't like that idea. We're going to get into that topic. We're also going to talk about uh, the COVID-era prisoner release uh, and uh, try to get into whether that's working out, sort of get into the topic in general of uh, what some refer to as the carceral state in America, especially in light of all of the drug laws resulting in people being behind bars. And finally, we're going to get into uh, vaping. Should we be telling kids not to vape or is that actually counterproductive? And uh, we are uh, going to have our Moron of the Week feature, as usual, at the end of the episode. I'm going to give you a clue, Connor. It has to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. So the most moronic person on the planet this week has... How could someone moronic be in any way affiliated yeah, with such delicious good, chicken? Good question. Well, we're going to answer that at the end Can't wait. of the episode. Before we get into the first issue about red flag laws, though, I, you know, everybody's worried about COVID and uh, sort of panicking about everything. Uh, the New York Times had an interesting article recently. A physicist sat down and computed risks of death. And he pointed out that most people, of course, die of natural causes. You know, old age, a disease from old age, or you just run out of gas, whatever. But then there's the chance you'll die 
from something else, something not so natural, like lightning or COVID or Freddy Krueger attacks or Choking whatever. Choking on a ho-ho. Yeah, exactly. So he computed the chances of something really weird happening, resulting in your demise. And interestingly, I'd never heard this word, but the measure of this death chance is called a micromort. And a micromort is a one in a million chance that you will die today from something other than natural causes. Our French-speaking listeners out there might uh, notice that uh, the micromort is basically a little death, uh, which is the direct French translation for the word for orgasm. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Good. I'm glad you didn't know yeah, that. That's all I prefer these, my father not know anything about sex. That's all these French folks care about, as far as I can tell. Just right. kidding. Uh, so... <laughs> Let's go over some of the, the numbers. If you're a skydiver, Connor... Please, give me some micromorts. Seven micromorts. Seven chances in a million that you are going to... So it's one chance in a million. this thing is not opening. Gotcha. Okay. Although, then there was the bog lady. I don't know if you remember that story yeah. from about 15 years ago. The to bo- change the statistic. Yeah, she really skewed the numbers. She uh, she went out uh, of the airplane, her very first jump, and what do you know? The parachute doesn't open, and she plummets Shots to Earth. Shots hate when that happens. She landed in a bog mm-hmm. that was the precise, perfect consistency for her to not only survive, she walked away without a limp. Incredible. So if you land uh, on you know soft, cushiony mattresses with, with cotton, that right. you go down 800 feet, you'd probably be okay. Right. If you land on water or concrete, you're not going to be okay. Done. The bog was the perfect consistency. Amazing. So, yeah, she she probably didn't... Uh, Amazing. Yeah, she, so she uh, messed up the stats for skydiving. Uh, general anesthesia, I don't want to frighten anybody who's undergoing a procedure, but uh, five, in a, five in a million, seven, five micromorts is the chance. But, you know, that's a per, those are pretty good odds. You yes. Know? You've got some surgery going, even if it's plastic and elective and all that. I'd, right. I'd still... Put up with five in a million. It's like winning the lottery. It ain't going to happen. Uh, here's a little scarier stat. Giving birth, 210 micromorts out of but out of a million. So, you know, you, you want to have that baby. Just walking around, Connor, uh, is one. One in a million. Uh, the statistics show, whether it's a, a car hitting you or electrocution or an asteroid uh, from Alpha Centauri, that's one micromort. Uh, so now, of course, we got to talk a little bit about COVID because that's what's uh, uppermost right. in people's minds. So let me uh, what run through heard? the math, yeah. and I try. Let me try and do my version of that. Okay, okay. So we've got, say, you're American. If you're listening to our podcast, just as a hypothesis, you've got three hundred three hundred and sixty million Americans, right? So you've got 360 million uh, as the denominator, um, and you've got 193,000 deaths so far in uh, uh, during the pandemic as the numerator. And we're trying to figure out uh, how to uh, reduce that fraction down to a micromort, which would be X over a million, right, in the same way that we were right. doing with the others. So if we want to get 360 down to a million, we'd divide it by 360. So that gives us 1 million. Then we'd have to divide 193,000 by 360. That gives us 0.536. So basically 0.5 micromorts in this situation from COVID. That's how I would compute it. Does that sound uh, mathematically sound to you, uh, a lawyer, and thus someone who knows nothing about math, I I hope? I have no idea, but I'm going to accept your numbers. Half a micromorph. Bottom line is, though, and you you put it well just before we started the episode, maybe the lesson here is, you know, these are scary times. But you don't want to ruin your life over it, but you do want to take steps to minimize your Absolutely. risk. Absolutely, especially when it's unlike skydiving, where you decide, I'm going to take on this risk, and I'm part of a tiny little population of people who wants to uh, incur that risk for a big reward. And instead, on the other side of things, you've got COVID, which shouldn't, you know, 
you know, ruin your sleep and make you miserable all day, every day, thinking, oh gosh, what if I get it? But your choices affect other people's micro-morts that they have to incur. You wearing a mask reduces other people's uh, danger. I actually saw a very cool report on, on the, a breakdown that explains how masks are even more effective than we think. As you get more and more people in the population wearing masks or taking other precautions that protect other people, a mask are a great example of this. Say if 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 I uh, wear a mask, uh, but uh, but I'm only part of half the population that mm-hmm. wears a mask. That means that 75 percent of interactions with people as they are distributed randomly around the world, interacting with each other, 50 percent wearing masks and 50 percent not. 75 percent of interactions involve one of the two parties wearing a mask because you got mask, no so, mask, no so mask. Great. Now mask, you are scaring mask, us. Mask. So it's it's better because there's like a multiplicative effect. So for every yeah. person that wears a mask, you get an increased benefit of mask protection for the world as a whole. So please, people, wear them. Yep, that's that's good advice. A couple of final stats on this fun topic of the likelihood of death. <laughs> if you commute 20 miles each way to work on mm-hmm. a motorcycle, remember when you used to commute to work on your motorcycle 20 yeah. miles each day? That's 11 micromorts. That's 11 chances in a million. What about my Any Vespa? Any day you're going to die. Say is what? The, my Vespa, is that the same as a motorcycle? Same deal, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. The Vespa, right? I probably Vespa. even a greater. I'm not cool enough to ride a Vespa. Probably even a greater chance of death because the people in the cars laughing at the Vespa <laughs> will crash. They're going to crash right, into yeah. you. And uh, finally, um, this is a, this is a, a sad statistic. If you uh, are a soldier in Afghanistan in the height of war, you have 25 micromorts, 25 in a million chance of dying any given day. Just living in New York City during COVID, 50 micromorts. Wow. Per day, incredible. I mean, that really makes it makes it obvious that the the distributed the risk of COVID is not distributed equally geographically. It's about hotspots and clusters. When New York was at its height in the cluster, and we were having you know too many bodies to fill up the morgue, we're not talking about the half uh, of one micromort that we can consider uh, over the course of this entire seven month pandemic. We're talking about. A hundred times that risk, which we're talking about, it's like skydiving seven times a day. So skydiving seven times a day just to go outside to go to the supermarket. Oh my gosh, people wear five masks, right? Like it's a very different situation. So and when we check your parachute too. When we come back, we are going to talk about the red flag laws in terms of whether they're a loss of freedom, a tricky way to confiscate your guns. But in the meantime, we do hope you will subscribe yes, to the podcast. Please. Go on uh, Apple Podcasts is the big one, uh, but also Stitcher, Spotify, all the other services that you use to get your podcast and leave us a review. Give us a five-star review and uh, write in about how great we are. Uh, just takes like 20 seconds and it really helps us out. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still Connor Oaks. So red flag laws, Connor, it, um, they let the cops and family members go to the court and say, <laughs> Judge, sorry to bother you, but whoa, you won't believe what Bert's doing at home or down the street. I think you ought to take his gun away from him. He's a danger to himself and others. So as of a couple of months ago, April, to be precise, 2020, 19 states and the District of Columbia had these red flag laws. Uh, Oklahoma 
is the only anti-red flag law state. It bans the state, all the cities and the counties in Oklahoma from even thinking about enacting these red flag laws. Right, the thought is this is like a a minority report situation. These are pre-crimes. You're saying that this person- Tom Cruise movie. Right, somebody is gonna try to take my guns away because they just think I'm a weirdo or don't like the way I act or something else. And gosh darn it, this is America. It's the land of freedom and and grits or whatever. I don't know what this is the land of. We got a lot of things that were the land of, but freedom's definitely on the list. I saw my cousin Vinny. This is the land of grits. Land of grits, absolutely. And they always take the same amount of time to cook. So (laughs) this is dangerous because people are going to take away my guns on, what, suspicion? Just because I'm vaguely suspicious? Don't we all remember that 30 Rock episode where Liz Lemon is, you know, so hyped up on post 9-11 fervor that she's, uh, you know, calling Homeland Security on the guy across the hall from her and he ends up getting imprisoned by, uh, you know, uh, jackbooted thugs, and all he was doing was practicing for the amazing race. He really wanted to be a contestant on the, his favorite American TV show. So the history of this is... Um, <laughs> is that too convoluted and doing that? No, no, okay. that's a good Thank background. You. But, but here's, here's kind of how we got into this red flag law situation. Uh, Connecticut was the very first state to do this after a, uh, a shooting um, in 2000, uh, I think, uh, six. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, doggone it, we're going to have this red flag law. California came along in 2014. It, it had the first law letting family members petition the courts as opposed to the police going to the judge. Right. Uh, this maniac, Elliot Roger, was a mass shooter in Isla Vista uh, near Santa Barbara. Uh, and I know, Connor, you were going to school there at that time. Yeah, uh, I had I just graduated. Imagine. I was in grad school, I was in law school, but I still had cla- uh, friends who were you know, under underclassmen uh, and, and women to me, so younger uh, than I, who were still going to school up there and uh, who I knew through the Secular, secular Student Union um, and through the, the newspaper that I had written for and on the rowing team and people who were younger than I. And, and uh, it was very, uh, very scary time, of course. It made, made everything so personal. I mean, Obviously, I was personally safe. I wasn't there, but it was. You were in the ivory tower of USC Law School. (laughs) Yeah, the ivory tower. Yeah, but you Um, you knew people who were still there, right? Absolutely, and you know, it was it has sort of uh, uh, among the the people that I know who had direct connections to Santa Barbara. It made it so much more real the problem of mass shootings and violence. Uh, for us out here on the West Coast, where we feel like feels like we have fewer, you know, statistically, uh, but but uh, you never know. I just uh, I haven't I looked at the numbers. It just feels so distant and far away um, when you have something uh, like Sandy Hook happen. Um, it really brings it home. Sandy Hook is a great example about red flag laws because uh, I believe uh, it's my understanding that that would happen in a state where there were red flag laws and where the shooter had been flagged as a potentially dangerous person wow. and, and brought to law enforcement, uh, but nothing had been done before uh, the uh, killings occurred. This is uh, a, a procedure where uh, a lot of people get up in arms, no pun intended, um, about the, the danger uh, of a red flag law because we think, okay, somebody's just going to snap their fingers and call the cops or something, and, and suddenly all my guns are going to be gone, and I'm going to lose $10,000 because, you know, my guns are expensive, and I'll also lose my gosh darn right to, to, to bear arms. But it's actually a process. It's a process where you go to a court and a judge has to hear the arguments in favor of saying, look, judge, we need the extraordinary remedy of taking away somebody's personal private property, either for the short term or for the long term, yeah. depending. And they've got to make you know legal arguments in a court of law to back that up. And here's some of the specifics. California, for example, it allows, as I mentioned, the cops to petition to remove guns for up to one year. In Oregon, anybody living with a gun owner 
may go to the court and petition. Uh, California recently had an amendment. It allows not only the people living with you or the cops, it lets your employer or co-worker go to court if mm-hmm. they see something fishy. Right. Could be kind of awkward around the office yeah, after they after do that, this, but yeah. it's, it's a legal option. And... It's a misdemeanor to file a petition to take somebody's gun away if the if the purpose is really to harass somebody and right. you know that it's kind of false. Right. So there's that protection. So the real question in our minds has to be, do these work? Is this something that we actually think is going to save lives? Yeah. And, the, and, and we've got some stats on that. It's really actually. hard to measure, though. Well, I'll tell you what we've got. Connecticut, we've seen uh, from 1999 to 2013. So it's a good four, 14-year chunk. And I was wrong about the start date. It's 99. Okay. Connecticut had 700. 162 removals of guns, and the experts estimate we had one averted suicide for every 10 seizures of guns. Okay, so that is something we can actually really measure scientifically. While we can't say how many, you know, Sandy Hooks or Isla Vista shootings do we have, or, you know, whatever other black swan, extremely rare events— uh, are supposed to happen in a month or a year, suicides are so unfortunately common that we can at least track the incidents over a period of time, like a year, and say, how many times did we confiscate somebody's gun with a red flag law and versus is. how many times did somebody kill themselves with a gun that they own? And it is frustrating because, as you're suggesting, we have a better handle on what these red flag laws have done regarding suicides than shootings. Now, in Indiana, uh, there was a journal, a Psychiatric Services uh, did a study they saw an 8% cut in suicides. Uh, Florida uh, peti- petitions are granted, wow, 98% of the time. So wow. it's virtually automatic. If, you, if you're going to take the trouble to go to the court, you probably have, uh, you're locked and loaded in terms of your ammunition uh, against this guy. Yeah. Studies say that it may help regarding mass shootings, but definitely it helps regarding suicides. The gun control advocates, of course, they say, well, you know, it's the, the purpose here is to put the camel's nose under the tent. People want to take our guns away from us. Uh, And the 98% approval rate does suggest it it may be kind of a rubber stamp. The judges may tend to believe this. But it it seems it's hard to argue against a red flag law because the upside is it's bound to save some lives. And the downside is, yeah, a few vindictive people are going to be filing petitions uh, groundlessly, but the courts are there to, to make sure yeah. that the, the, I mean, the process is fair. Conservatives very frequently will tell you that we need to slow down the process and make incremental changes instead of big, sweeping, or dramatic changes, and that that will protect people's individual rights and liberties by restricting government from uh, infringing on those rights too rashly or too quickly. I think this is a great conservative uh, style approach to gun control legislation. The idea of infringing on people's gun rights is a, is, a, is something that provokes a very strong negative reaction in a lot of people, and that's okay. That they have that reaction; it's totally reasonable because that's the culture that we live in, and they you know have legitimate uses for guns, like hunting or self protection or whatever, and they believe that that makes them safer to have guns in the house, etc. So, how do you affect? Uh, the rate of suicides of Americans in this country, or maybe even the rate potentially could also help with mass shooting type events uh, that are these horrific events we want to stop. Well, we want to take things really slowly and put in a judge and law enforcement. This is law enforcement, not classically anti-gun, you know, folks out there. And law enforcement mediates this. 
So you've got a process where law enforcement is the first line of defense against a frivolous claim, and then you, after that, have to go through a judge who makes the determination that this person has. And it, it, they're usually most often used for people who are suffering from something that impairs your judgment, like alcoholism or dementia. And then you have the potential for a person's gun to be taken away, uh, potentially only for a short period of time after that. That sounds like an incremental change that I think conservatives can get behind. And then right now, of course, I mean, Groups like the NRA and other gun rights organizations are just going to oppose largely any gun control legislation because that's what their job is, their purpose is to do. But I think that the, the bulk of conservatives out there who understand that you know guns are connected to suicide and that it, guns in the home of, of, the, of the average American increases the risk of, of suicide if someone in that house might say, hey, this is a good thing for mental health. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the difficulty we have is that the hardcore NRA types, a lot of people really feel that the secret agenda of the progressives who are trying to take control of the nation is to just get rid of all gun rights and get rid of the Second Amendment, get some justices in there that'll change the Heller opinion out of the Supreme Court. And as a result, they push back. The conservatives push back against reasonable steps because they know they just have to fight. They're going to lose some battles. But in reality, the best thing is Nobody should want crazy people, uh, violent people, criminals to have guns. Nobody should should want uh, uh, people to have certain weapons, you know, bazookas, machine guns. So you have right. to have reasonable regulations. And one form of reasonable regulation really is to make sure that these red uh, flag laws go into effect on a reasonable basis. 85% of voters have said in polls it is okay for cops to take guns hmm. from folks who judges say are dangerous. Uh, and even on the federal level, 75% of the people say, well, let's not just do it on the state level, let's do it with the feds as well. So uh, I, I think that's kind of the wave of the future. That's good. When we come back, we are going to talk about uh, prisoner release during a COVID and uh, the carceral state in general. So stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. So should we stop uh, releasing um, felons because of COVID? It's been a big uh, controversial question. Uh, uh, about 18,000 convicts have been released across the United States in 20 states during COVID. Uh, California is uh, on track for a pretty high chunk of that. Most of the releasees have been nonviolent criminals, uh, but there have been reports of rapes and murders. Uh, convicted re registered sex offenders have been released. Um, and so, you know, the, reminiscent of the Willie Horton controversy back in the day when uh, Governor Dukakis was running against George Bush the senior in 1988 for president, one of the problems Dukakis ran into is that he had a weekend furlough program for Massachusetts uh, crooks in prisons. And one uh, who had been convicted of a homicide crime, Willie Horton, was let out for a weekend furlough. And what do you know? Uh, he went out and committed further crimes, uh, uh, murdered folks and so on, and Dukakis paid the political price. I don't know that that is really uh, going to turn into a big political uh, issue here. Uh, I, I guess one question, Connor, is you know whether we whether we have the sense uh, that there is going to be from fall, some fallout for the presidential race. And uh, a related question is is the one that that uh, you have mentioned uh, before we started the episode, and that's just looking at in general uh, the issue of the the role of prisons, especially with respect to people of color uh, in this society. Yeah, I, I think prisoner is just kind of like the gun rights issue we just talked about. That there are a lot of people who are pro 
tough on crime policies uh, who for whom the idea of letting folks out of prison for any reason early uh, is just scary and bad and wrong and they don't want to do it. On the other hand, we have people who are opposed, as I am, to sort of the perpetuation of the carceral state where we over-criminalize people and we uh, over-police people. And the end result of that is that our biases get amplified um, by the power that we hand over to law enforcement and they end up um, uh, sort of putting those biases into action in discriminatory ways. And uh, the carceral state being the a natural outcome of tough on crime policies, um, we think to ourselves, we think to ourselves, um, you know, it's probably just a good idea to be letting folks out of prison anyway. And this COVID is, air quotes, a good excuse to do it. Now, that's doesn't mean that people aren't actually dying of COVID. It's just that I am already in favor of prisoner release programs. And so, of course, I'm going to be in favor of this one in the same way that somebody who's tough on crime is probably going to be against this one. Now, the, the real facts here around COVID are startling and, and frightening. Uh, COVID in prisons is a horrifying uh, reality. The idea that you've got people trapped in uh, in prisons, groups often who are at the highest risk, men, uh, minorities, um, the highest risk medically and statistically uh, to suffer uh, from COVID, to suffer long-term effects of COVID, and even to die of COVID. Uh, these are people who desperately need our help and attention. They're people who are often forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. It's very easy to have somebody be trapped in a prison and not think about that person. You sort of, the mentality is you've done something serious and wrong, lock them up and throw away the key. This is a great opportunity to actually talk about um, a new book by a professor uh, uh, of mine who I was lucky enough to have as a professor in law school. His name is Jody Armour, um, and he's a professor at USC Law School. And he wrote a, a book that uh, I will refer to as uh, End Theory, um, and it's about um, uh, the carceral state generally. It's, it's very autobiographical. There's a lot in there about uh, his own life um, and his father's life. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's frankly it's a, it's an inspirational read, but it's also very thought provoking. Uh, he points out it's his position um, that uh, the notion, this false uh, dichotomy between nonviolent low level offenders and violent serious uh, criminals, um, that is a false dichotomy that even uh, liberals like myself often uh, trip up and fall into, where we start saying things like, well, we could all we could solve the problem of the carceral state if only we stopped uh, over-criminalizing low-level offenders and people who have, you know, just the tiniest amount of drugs. And like, is that really a serious crime? Is it hurting anybody? It's only victimless crimes. If we just let them out of prison, especially in this time of COVID, then we would just solve the carceral state problem. And Professor Armour's very good point uh, that uh, has really resonated with me is, no, you can't just throw uh, uh, throw all violent offenders in uh, a bucket together and say they're beyond rehabilitation, they're beyond uh, human rights, they're beyond who, uh, care, uh, and we should instead only lift uh, and, and, and rehabilitate and reintegrate those people who uh, only, you know, overstep the boundaries of what we consider, uh, you know, legal and, and, and morally right by just a tiny bit. But isn't that going to be kind of a tough sell, given people's attitudes toward crime? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a libertarian, I think we ought to get rid of the uh, drug laws. Mm -hmm. And if we, for example, uh, let people go who have been convicted of uh, drug uh, crimes, that would go a long way to uh, reduce the... Uh, uh, the incarceration rate, uh, and we it would could, go and, a significant and, and we way. We could change our attitudes, but you know, people in general 
think about crime not only with respect to, to drug, uh, drugs, but other types of crimes as well. And give you some examples that could be in the news and could have an impact on the political campaign. In Denver, Cornelius Haney, 40-year-old man, sentenced four years ago to robbery for seven years. He was paroled for COVID, and he was then arrested for shooting a 21-year-old woman to death three days after his release. Tampa, Florida, um, Joe Williams, age 26, who was released because of COVID, uh, burglary, felony, possession of gun, drug offenses. One day after his release, he allegedly shot and killed a guy. And finally, Ibrahim Boachi in Alexandria, Virginia, he was in jail on rape charges, strangulation, abduction, jailed without bond. He was released because of COVID. The judge said, hey, only leave home to meet with your attorneys or court officials. And now a woman is testifying, uh, who was testifying against him in a pretrial hearing, uh, accusing him of rape. Uh, he shot and killed his accuser. So people are going to hear stories like this. Yes. I, yes. I, I don't think you're, you're so going to be changing people's general so attitudes you're about right. crime. And you're right, and it's unfortunately tragic, uh, a tragic reality of the human mind and the way that we love and obsess about stories, that we will hear a story like that and, and put a lot of weight on those three incidents that you just gave, or even the 30 incidents or the 300 incidents. But there are 360 million people in this country, as we were discussing earlier about COVID, and there are a, a lot of people in lots of prisons who are have been imprisoned for crimes, both serious and not serious, for nonviolent or violent offenses. When we think about other statistics that might capture our, uh, our our brains in the same way as a story, perhaps even, and say, there's one statistic that has really stuck with me. We can all look at the stats over the last 40 years and seen that crime has been dropping dramatically by almost every single metric, that we are getting better about dealing with crime in this situ in this country. And it's not that, uh, that we are locking criminals up. It's that people are out there committing fewer crimes. But despite that, despite the fact that people are committing fewer crimes and, then f and, and, and getting arrested for them less often, we are imposing harsher and harsher sentences on people that we, we not just people that we uh, call violent, but also nonviolent offenders, but the people that we call nonviolent or low-level offenders only make up 16% of the increase in uh, uh, incarcerations that we would describe as this, uh, the, during the period that we would describe as this massive uh, rise in the carceral state that started back in the, uh, the 80s and 90s. So in the last 40 years, 16% of the rise in, in incarcerations is from low-level offenders. That leaves 84% of the rise of incarcerations from people who are not low-level or drug offender, drug, you know, minor drug offenders. This is 84% of people. Well, you can have jailing. the societal debate as to whether we're uh, incarcerating too many people. Right. And certainly you can have the debate about racism, which yes. is absolutely on the front burner as yeah. a result of the whole Black Lives Matter phenomenon this yeah. year. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a, a tough but sell do, to convince the saying. public to, to re significantly reduce the level uh, of punishment yes. uh, that people get. But remember that it, it, you're right. And like I said earlier, stories are always going to beat statistics. But just think about the fact that we've got less crime happening, but we've got a massive rise in incarceration. And so we have... Uh, 84% of the massive rise of incarceration is people who we are calling violent offenders who've committed dangerous crimes. And this is, a, this is a group of people that Professor Armour points out, I think rightly, we need to 
break down the wall between them and the the the, the good ones uh, that we describe as the the nonviolent offenders. That we have to have empathy and compassion and understanding of how where these people uh, came from, why they did what they did, how we rehabilitate them, how we reincorporate them into society, yeah, all, all, how we destigmatize. You can't argue with any of that. But on the other hand, the fact is, so many more crimes get committed than get caught. In that sense, you know, why should we worry about incarcerating too many people? Because, I mean, we have a long ways to go before we catch everybody. While you're right that many crimes uh, go unsolved, largely because the police are not an effective tool for solving crimes, they're a much more effective tool social for workers? having Send guns. Send in the social workers? Social workers prevent crimes. Uh, cops try and fail to solve them. Right. So in that way, yes, I would say send in the social workers. But at the same time, we could see that Yes, we might think, well, since there are salt crimes that go unsolved, we should just keep locking people up infinitely until they are solved. As a libertarian, you probably say that this is a massive expenditure of you know unjustly taken tax money that we're spending. The question is, is that worth it? Is it accomplishing something? Is it doing something? And the answer that the, the studies show is that it's not. It's that our crime rate is going down for other reasons, largely that people are being raised out of poverty in many different circumstances, and thus they're less likely to commit crimes of desperation and need. And it's really not about well, just throw more people in prison. It's throwing more people in prison and destroying local communities and, you know, taking people out of the workforce and then sticking them with criminal records that will ruin their entire lives so that recidivism rates are extremely high. That's what's causing all these more crimes. And so and not I, doing that will actually make the, the crime rate go down in the world a, a better place. And I think we ought to consider the ban-the-box ideas uh, where mm, you prevent idea, employers point. from learning everything about uh, people's past criminal activity. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful news that the uh, rate crime rate is down, but Hooray. I'm not going to be uh, for defunding the police. Uh, I, I'm not, we'll I'm work not, on I'm not we'll going work on that we'll far. We'll get there. So, uh, it's still early in 2020. It feels like oh it. Oh, my least. God. It does not feel early <laughs> in 2020. Uh, the the year that will not end. Yeah. So uh, we don't really have time to get into uh, the vaping issue. Vaping uh, bad. Done. We're going to talk vaping <laughs> next week. But we do have time to fulfill our promise to talk about the moron of the week. And I mentioned it had to do with Kentucky Fried Chicken. So here's the deal. You won't believe this, Connor. Kentucky Fried Chicken is suspending their iconic finger-licking-good advertising campaign. Really? Why? Because of the pandemic. Ah. You're not supposed to lick your fingers during the COVID pandemic. I don't think it's smart. I think this is a severe overreaction. I mean, the CDC has guidelines, I'm sure, for eating delicious fried chicken. Getting rid of of finger licking good, I mean... I think they should start a new campaign where they say, so good you'll turn your mask into a feed bag and you just shove chicken under the mask and you face downward and you just eat eat chicken out of the mask like you're a horse. You're like Don Draper. You should quit your day job and become an ad man. I'm going to do that. I don't know. All right. Well, I'll see you next week on Too Many Lawyers. Take care of yourself.